0: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Storytime with Boone. Thanks again for downloading it. Massive thanks as well for all the positive feedback that you've been sending my way again. It's nice to hear from you. This week, as we hear confirmation that Stone Roses are recording their first new music in 20 years, I'll talk about my friendship and adventures with Roses bass player, Manny, who I've now known for 33 years. And I'll be playing you a piece of psychedelic music that we made together back in 1984. I'll talk about what it was like growing up with a dad who was like a modern-day Dr. Doolittle. I often think we could have opened our own zoo in Oldham if mum and dad hadn't been busy running our corner shop. I'll talk about how I once watched two unknown Scouse punk rockers uh, sat in absolute awe listening to their hero in a small dressing room in Liverpool in 1978 before going off to start two of the most important British bands of all time. On each episode, I'll talk about how a particular song that I've written over the years came about. On this podcast, I'll be talking about the song which. Pretty much put an end to my TV theme tune writing career. The phone didn't ring much after I submitted this one. And the unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are a bunch of lads from Scunthorpe who I bumped into last week. They're called Twisted Revolution and they've got a gorgeous track that I'm going to share with you. My podcasts are brought to you by Distorted Productions and don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist which I assemble every week where you can hear full versions of the tracks on the episode and other tracks which are in some way connected to the stories I've been telling okay let's do it story time with boone subscribe now on itunes it's really exciting to hear that the stone roses are recording the first new music in over 20 years i'm excited for the fans and for the lads in the band as well i'm excited for me as a fan i first met manny bass player at the roses in a pub in oldham it was called the miner's arms 1983 it'd be and we had a mutual friend a guy called chris goodwin and at the time chris was drumming in a band called Wheatstone's Bridge. They did a lot of covers, a lot of Beatles and Stones stuff and kinks, and that Wheatstone's Bridge eventually became a band called Exit. They were amazing. I got to know Chris Gooding really well over the space of uh, the next few months, and he'd mentioned this manny kid that he knew. But this was the first time I'd met him, and I was struck immediately by his spirit. Man, he was genuine, he's funny, mischievous. And as with Chris and myself, totally passionate about, about music. And we got on great from minute one, and the three of us pretty much decided on the spot in the miners' arms in late 1983, to start making music together. Within a couple of weeks, we started jamming every Sunday at the mill in Ashton-Underline, where I worked. Have I ever mentioned I used to work in a mill in Ashton? I'd pick Manny up and Chris uh, in my car, Chris from Alden, Manny from Falesworth, and we'd drive over to the mill to make this uh, experimental, industrial, psychedelic music that we made. We used to record every session on, on cassette tapes and eventually I bought myself a four-track cassette-based Porter Studios, as they used to call it, so that we were able to enter the world of multi-track recording for the first time. And we'd make sounds, or we'd make music, not just with traditional instruments, but with whatever machinery was lying around. It was a very industrial mill that we were jamming in, you know what I mean? We were inspired as much by bands like Einstein, Zend and, Norbert, and as we were by The Velvet Underground, etc. There'd be a lot of glass being smashed, there'd be... Angle grinders going off, sparks everywhere, me with my safety goggles on, health and safety boon. And on one occasion, I drove our forklift truck over a microphone, which I'd set to record, and it literally recorded its own actual final moments. So at the time, I thought, that's, that's quite, a, quite a piece of art, that, quite a work of art, you know what I mean? And we carried on with these Sunday sessions at the mill, right through 84 and well into 1985. We even did a recording session on Christmas Day in 1984, we didn't do any gigs, we just recorded our music every weekend onto cassette tapes. The first one we did, we did like a little EP sort of thing, a selection of songs called Sounds Alright to Me, and the second was called Minstrels in Lullaby i.e. M-I-L-L. And we became known as The Mill, we never got ourselves a proper name, but because we were at The Mill every Sunday, we became known as The Mill, or in old, they used to call us, To Mill, <laughs> going to the Mill. And I would sing and play keyboards and operate the industrial machinery, Chris had play drums, uh, guitar, sing a bit. Manny would play bass and guitar and sing a bit as well, and occasionally get on the drums. And we had these two bar stools in my studio at the time in the mill. And when you sat on them, a bit of air came out from under the, like a little small hole in the bottom of the seat. And it'd make a sound like a poof, <laughs> like that, as the air came out. And we'd always comment that it sounded like pan pipes. And it coined a phrase in the mill pan pipes of the Andes. Every time one of us sat down, he'd sit down, poof. <laughs> I've still still got the stools and to this day 32 years later we still use the phrase every time we communicate we say pan pipes are the Andes so just yesterday I got a text from Manny and it ended with the words pan pipes are the Andes (laughs) they were some of the happiest Sundays I've ever spent in my life happy Sundays in fact they were and I had a a Polaroid camera at the time as well so we'd take loads of photographs and this Polaroid camera had a, a big button on the front they didn't have it on the top like other cameras it was on the front for some reason and because there's usually just the three of us in the mill, the only way that I could get us all in a photograph was to place the camera against the wall, like on a shelf, and push a long stick against the trigger button. That's right, I invented the selfie stick in 1984. I did. I sort a trademarked it. You can see it on all these pictures, with like me holding a stick towards the camera. One of our songs that we did at the time was called Mind Train, and it starts with Manny saying, destination central brain via your cerebellum. Then there's the sound of one of us farting into the mic. I'm not sure which one it was. And there's a bit of backwards echo just before it for added psychedelic vibes. we were a bit like the Beatles in that respect. And then it goes on into a very trippy piece of 60s-inspired pop. This piece of music has never been played publicly. It's Mind Train by The Mill from 1984.
1: There's a train the coming
0: On our way home from the mill on Sunday nights, we'd drive through a a place called Daisy Nuke. Uh, If you're not familiar with this area, it's a couple of square miles of beautiful, idyllic English countryside on the edge of Manchester up near Falesworth Way. And it's woven with these narrow country lanes and farm pathways, like little lanes heading off into fields and that. And at night, it was used by courting couples to get up to mischief in the cars and that. (laughs) And we'd often drive slowly alongside them on our way home. We'd go up these dirt tracks and... Cruise slowly alongside these cars. with have lights out, and then surprise them with the flash of the Polaroid camera pressed up against them window. The, I had to drive off really quickly. Some of the expressions we captured were absolutely priceless. I know it's out of order. I know we shouldn't have done it. It, it, was, it was probably Manny's idea. The mill was never going to be anything more than a studio project. Really, we never we never planned on doing any gigs. I mean, how do you get a foil of truck on on stage in your average venue? You know, and all that broken glass. Health and safety had definitely been a big issue, wasn't it? We would occasionally gig as the, the rhythm section in a band called The Hungry Socks, so another seminal olden band whose frontman Swinney. He was a local legend, and uh, the repertoire for The Hungry Socks included such tracks as Nelson's Eyeball, and uh, we did a cover of Psycho by the Sonics as well. Over time, my dad helped me to convert some of the empty offices in this mill that we were working in into like proper studio space. And on one occasion in 1985, I actually placed a cassette tape of some of the mill's songs... I put it behind a wall that my dad was building and last year, so 30 years after I put it there, someone pulled the wall down, found the tape and contacted me online to say they'd found it. Now that's what I call a proper time capsule, that. If only I'd known, when I put that cassette behind the wall, the paths that our lives were going to take. I'd be recording demos by other bands in my studio throughout the week and uh, I'd rent out a couple of rooms for bands to rehearse. During the evenings and eventually one day I got a call from a band called in Spiral Carpets um, from Oldham. Said, do you want to come down and rehearse and do some recording? They came down, I fell in love with the music. They were very punky at the time and I thought if I bring this farfizer organ in and play with them, it's going to be like classic 60s garage punk music. So I blagged my way in and the rest of that is history obviously. I'm not going to go into that one now. <laughs> you know that story. Chris went off and eventually formed a band called The High and uh, Manny got a job as a, a lighting technician at the Opera House in Manchester. And we did keep in touch, we still hung out a lot, but we didn't really carry on doing the mill stuff, although we we always said we would do. For a while, Chris drummed for another brilliant band from Oldham called T'Challa Grid, which I ended up managing for a little bit as well. One Friday night in uh, 1987, late 1987, I was in a, a venue in Manchester called The Boardwalk, and it was a dead quiet night, there wasn't a lot of people in there, and I'm not even sure if there's any bands playing that night. A lot of the Manchester bands had rehearsed in the basement, of the boardwalk, and then after rehearsals or in between rehearsals, they'd just go and hang out in the venue upstairs. In fact, the Spirals, I think we held the record for playing at the boardwalk more than any other band. Anyway, on this one night, Ian Brown and John Squire were sat at the table looking a bit down, a bit glum, and the Roses at this point, they were gigging locally and doing alright around Manchester, but even though we all loved what they were doing, there was absolutely no sign whatsoever that they would become the monumental force that we know today. So Ian sat at his table with John and he said that the Roses bass player at the time, Pete Garner, was leaving and they really needed a replacement as soon as possible. I said, I, you know, I don't have any ideas at the moment, but we'll keep my ears open. And Manny at this point was completely off the radar in terms of, you know, being a gigging musician. He was busy doing his day job flashing lights down at the Opera House. So when Ian said the Stone Roses needed a bass player, Manny's name didn't even enter my head. And Ian had actually known Manny years earlier from the days of Scooter Boys. But even he, even Ian Brown hadn't thought of, of Manny at this point. So that job could have gone to anyone with a, a bass guitar and the right look and the right attitude, obviously, in Manchester that weekend. Anybody could have got that job. So the next day, I'm walking through Manchester, Saturday afternoon, walking down Oldham Street, and I bump into Greg Mounfield. So Greg is Manny's younger brother. And I thought, fucking hell, Manny. Manny. And the rose, I told Greg, I said, look, let Manny know immediately that the Stone Roses need a bass player and he needs to get on it right away. I saw the lads last night, the Desperate, and before that weekend was over, I got a call to say, man, who was now a stone rose, which was brilliant. And it was beautiful watching the roses as the success unfolded over the years. And in the early days, they were touring at the same time as the inspiration, and we were both out the grafting, and literally on one occasion, we were driving alongside them in their little tour bus, heading south on the motorway. We were in our van, they were in their van. Off to do separate gigs in different parts of London. In fact, the same thing happened with another band once. We're on the M25. You'll like this. We found ourselves like cruising alongside a band's splitter bus, as they call it. All the gear in the back, people in the you know middle bit, driver at the front. But we couldn't see who the band was because the windows were all blacked out. So we made a quick sign. We got like some notepaper, held it up. What band are you? <laughs> and then they did a little scribble. Out. They put a sign up: Sonic Youth you question mark and we did like spiral carpets at which point there was a bit of scrambling about in the van and one of our singles appeared from the back of the bus and was proudly pushed up against the the window on the passenger side of this van Sonic Youth had one of our records in the two of us we're like come on (laughs) anyway so back to the Roses they went off and became the most magnificent British pop group of all time and eventually they disbanded after that ill-fated appearance at the Reading Festival 1996 so John and Rennie had already left the band at this point and even though the changes were significant, there was still a real sense of occasion when the Roses were doing Reading. When they arrived on site that afternoon, I remember seeing them come in through the VIP enclosure, man he was bouncing with enthusiasm like he always does. Ian was dressed completely in purple and he had the aura of a boxer who knew that he was about to become you know, the world champion. I think he was actually doing his boxing dance as he came through the VIP area and went like, that the Roses were here. But because of serious technical issues on on, on stage during the gig, there was issues with the monitoring system, and it meant that Ian's singing that night wasn't that great, and people started leaving, people in the audience started leaving like after three or four songs into this headline set. And the musicians amongst us, we knew exactly what the problem was, because if if you can't hear your voice coming back at you when you're singing on stage, you've got no chance, you're dead in the water. It's something that you'll only ever understand or experience when you're on stage singing in in a large venue. And this was a large venue, probably 50,000 people, Reading Festival, <laughs> a large mm-hmm. venue. And the Roses Reading gig, it was all the ammunition that the detractors needed and the press needed, you know, to say it was all over. And within weeks, they did announce that they were splitting up. And I spoke to Manny on the phone the day the news broke. I remember speaking to him, and he was on his way to London. He said, I've just got to sort some shit out with the, the lawyers, and then I'm, I'm back up north, and we'll get our band moving. I remember him saying that. I would thinking, that'll do. This was the year after the Inspirals had split up. So I was was well up for doing something. But on that visit to London, who does Manny go and bump into but the rock and roll legend that is Bobby Gillespie? So then, next thing I hear, Clint, I'm in Primal Scream. Uh, I'll see you in a bit. (laughs) And this next fantastic chapter happened in the the career of Gary Mounfield. He'd gone from playing bass in one of the most important bands of all time to playing bass in another one of the most important bands of all time, Primal Scream. And it's fair to say Manny took the scream to a completely new level. Bobby Gillespie himself was very vocal about the new lease of life that Manny's presence brought to the the scream camp. Manny was still playing with Primal Scream when his mum passed away in 2011. And it was at um, his mum's funeral where Ian Brown and John Squire came together for the first time in like 15 years or something. And it was obvious the way they were chatting throughout the afternoon, Ian and John, that any bad blood had long since passed. And it was lovely. But what happened in the next few days was a chapter that I didn't enjoy one bit. I found myself in a situation that I completely hated. Rumours started online over the the, the days following the funeral. There was rumours online that there might be a Stone Roses reunion because Ian, John and Manny had been together at the funeral. And I started getting scores of messages on Twitter asking, is it true? Did they meet up? Is there going to be a reunion? And I tweeted innocently. I I put, uh, it's true that Ian and John met recently. It was at Manny's mum's funeral. We all went back to a pub in Fails with Ian and John, got on great. And I put in there that they spent a couple of hours chatting, all very relaxed and that. And I think I said at the end of it, apart from that, I know nothing else. As a friend and a fan, I do hope it happens. And then within hours of that, the headlines started popping up. Clint Boone confirms Stone Rose's reunion. One very well-known music publication wrote, Inspiral Carpets Man, talks about potential reformation. Clint Boone has confirmed that Ian Brown and John Squire recently met up together following speculation that the Stone Roses are set for reunion. And Boone has confirmed that the pair recently had a chat, but Clint Boone confirms Stone Roses reunion. I was fucking gutted, to be honest, because it looked exactly as if I'd gone to the press straight from my mate's mum's funeral and blabbed about something that, to be honest, was completely insignificant in the scheme of things at the time. And I couldn't sleep for two nights. I just, I, f- I felt shit about it all. And to make things worse, I couldn't even get in touch with Manny or his wife Imelda to explain what had happened. They were away in the States for a break, so they were out of touch. And a couple of days after the news story broke, I did get a call from Manny and Imelda saying, don't worry, we know exactly what's gone on, you're not to blame. But I'll never forget that horrible feeling that I got, you know, having something innocent that I'd said, completely taken out of context and used in the wrong way. When the official news of a Stone Roses reunion did eventually come out in October 2011, it was the best news I'd heard in years. I sent Ian a message on the day saying, best feel-good news story this year, man. And like a lot of Stone Roses fans, I'm, I am excited about the news that's come out in the last few weeks that they are recording new music. It's what the world's been waiting for, isn't it? I'm chuffed for them. I'm chuffed for, chuff for them all for various reasons. One is that financially, a band that made such a monumental impact on British popular culture, not just music, but culture in general, finally getting some financial reward for it, that's a great thing. Two, the fact that they're going to be able to see for themselves, again, the impact that these songs that they wrote all those years ago, have on hundreds of thousands of people around the world, they'll be able to see the faces again and hear it in their voices as the crowd sings their songs back at them. As a club DJ, it's something I see several times. The way, you know, the way that Stone Rose's songs unite people, it is almost in a religious way and I'm chuffed, obviously, for all those masses of fans who finally get to see the, the Roses walk out on stage again. Most of all, though, I'm, I'm just so made up for my old mate Manny. He's a true working class hero. Panpipes of the Andes. So- Sometime in 1978, I went to watch one of my favourite bands, The Fall, play at a venue called Eric's in Liverpool. It was, it was right opposite the site of the old Cavern Club on Matthew Street. And I remember queuing up outside Eric's and looking at where the Cavern had stood, and it had been demolished uh, and filled in a few years earlier. And there were still boards all around the site, but you could still see the Cavern's doorstep. And I remember thinking at the time that even though, you know, I was a punk rocker and it was all things punk for me, and I was never a massive Beatles fan back in them days. But I remember thinking that's something of a, a travesty. That how could they do that? And eventually, a shopping centre was uh, put up on where the cavern had been. Cavern Walks, it's called in it. Somebody did get wise and uh, build the current version of the cavern that was put in place as close to the original's floor plan as they possibly could, but not quite because well, there's a big shopping centre there. Anyway, enough about the cavern. Let's let's go back across the street to Eric's across the road there. That early version of the fall that I saw back then, it was one of my favourite line-ups. They've had over 60 members go through the, the doors since uh, since then. But that early line-up to me was immense. He had Martin Brammer on guitar, very charismatic, very enigmatic. And he spent he spent a lot of the gigs around that time developing this uh, on-stage party trick where he'd stand with his back to the crowd while playing his solos and that, and then he'd bend over backwards, still playing his guitar, until he was looking at the audience, but upside down. Do you get what I'm saying? And when he eventually pulled it off, it was, it was breathtaking. But the few weeks leading up to it, where he was still trying to do it, when he kept falling over flat on his ass. <laughs> brilliant. But he just kept trying it and trying it, and eventually did it. And Martin went on to form another fantastic band called The Blue Orchids, who were a major influence on the early Inspiral carpets. The false Keyboard player back then was uh, Una, Una Baines, and she also went on to being The Blue Orchids. I always remember Una being really lovely to everybody, dead kind, handing out sweets and that in the dressing room before gigs. Not exactly the kind of shenanigans I'd expected, really, you know, my first ever rock and roll dressing room experiences. Mark Riley was in the band as well. he he'd just joined on bass in 78, and I got on well with him since the day we first met. He was, he was the first rock star, Mark Riley, lardy boy. He was the first rock star to ever answer my fan mail. I used to send him little postcards I'd like to say, right back. And he's gone on to enjoy a career as one of Britain's top broadcasters, to, to be fair, isn't he? The Falls drummer back then was a a lad called Carl Burns, and he was a completely different story. He was very much from the Keith Moon school of rock, really, proper rock and roller. And he'd think it was really funny to just give you a quick cigarette burn to the back of your hand when you were least expecting it. But a truly gifted musician who never really got the the long-term success that he deserved, maybe because he kept putting his cigarette out on people's skin. (laughs) Not always a good career move, is it? A friend of mine at the time, she was an hairdresser called Karen Reed, uh, eventually she became Karen Drinkwater, we're still close friends, she lives out in California now. But she used to borrow her dad's Jag at the time and drive us and, and some of the Falls to gigs while the rest would follow in another vehicle. And on this occasion, Eric's, uh, Karen had driven us over there and we were in the dressing room and a couple of Liverpool-based fans came into the dressing room t- to chat to the Falls frontman Marquis e. Smith and it's quite obvious that they were completely in awe of him. They were hanging on every syllable that came out of his mouth, total massive fans. And it was an image... I can remember to this day the two lads had, they quite, they had quite distinctive hair, one had dark hair and a really cheeky little pixie face and the other was bleached blonde hair and, and I'm sure the blonde one had bedroom slippers on. If they weren't bedroom slippers it was something very similar looking. <laughs> but I mean back then, punk fashion had introduced us to some pretty wacky stuff really, like bondage kecks and that, but but the idea of someone going out to a gig in, in bedroom slippers, it just hadn't been part of the, the pitch yet, even in Liverpool. <laughs> right? And these lads said that they'd they'd been in bands together a few times and were now uh, in between bands and ready to start a new band or new bands or whatever. And as time went on and punk became post-punk, some great things started to come out of the Liverpool music scene. Suddenly it appeared that Liverpool was the centre of the music world again and and when some of these bands started popping up on TV every week on TV pop shows like Top of the Pops, who should have started to see regular on my screen? Those two Fall fans who were in the dressing room uh, in Eric's that night. So soon after that fall gig at Erics, the one lad called Ian with the Pixie Face had gone on to form a band called Echo and the Bunny Men, and the other one, Julian, the boy with the blonde hair and, and the bedroom slippers, if I remember correctly, he'd formed a band called The Teardrop Explodes, and both bands went on to make wonderful records, and Julian Court went on to become one of those very rare and wonderful figures there, like Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd and Peter Green of Fleetwood Mike. One of those figures who treads a very fine line between creative genius and total madness. I've not met Julian Cope again since that night in 1978. He wouldn't remember meeting me there anyway. His autobiographies, Head On and Repossessed, are two of the best rock books you will ever read. They are brilliant. And I've always been a massive fan of his music. In in fact, his track, Elegant Chaos, that's from his first solo album. It's still one of my favourite songs ever. And it features a a line, on it, which gives the listener a great insight into how his mind works, Julian Cope. There's a lyric in there, people I see... Just remind me of mooing like a cow on the grass, but that's not to say that there's anything wrong with being a cow in anyway. There you go, the world, of, the world of Julian Cope in one beautiful line. As time went on, I did get to know the Men's frontman, Ian McCulloch. Yeah. As with Julian Cope and Teardrop Explodes, he's given us some of the, the greatest records of our lifetime. Ian had often dropped in on the Inspirals when we were recording uh, our third and fourth studio albums at Par Street in Liverpool uh, in the early 90s. Interesting facts about Ian... Those sunglasses that he wears, they never come off, right? He had them surgically attached when he was still a young lad. So no man or woman has ever seen Ian McCulloch's eyes since Mark e. Smith in that dressing room at Erics in 1978. If you were ever to see his eyes now, you, you would die on the spot, it's a fact that. He invited me over to his house once for a brew one afternoon. I'll tell you this story before we move on. And I thought, brilliant, I'm going to see Ian McCulloch's eyes. I wonder what colour eyes he's got. <laughs> I'm just like, I've never seen his eyes. And we're in his kitchen, and he's making a brew, shades on, as per, and he's like, yeah, do you want any sugar, in there? And when he talks, Mike, he does that, every, every sentence comes out in one long piece of unbroken sound on it. Yeah, do you want any sugar, in there? And I'm like, is he talking to me? I'm looking over my shoulder to see if anybody else there, and, and there's all of me in him there, so they must be talking to me. So I said, sorry, Ian, but what did he say? Yeah, do you want any sugar, in it?" Oh he was saying do you want any sugar in it in your brews? I said, No, just milk, man, just milk please. And then he says, Did you hear the new radio album yeah? And I said, sorry, he says, Did you hear the new radio album yeah? I said, sorry, said, say it again, I just slow it down a bit. He says, Did you hear the new radio album yeah? <laughs> and what he was saying was, Did you hear the new Radiohead album yet? Yeah? They just released an album and I can't remember which one it was, but it was absolutely he loved it. He was absolutely raving about it. Anyway, fact is, Ian McCullough is one of the most iconic frontmen ever and they've given us some of the greatest records of our lifetime.
1: Nothing ever lasts forever Nothing ever lasts forever Nothing ever lasts forever Nothing ever lasts forever
0: So on every episode, I like to pick a song from my uh, lucrative past <laughs> and tell you how it came about. This one's not got such an happy ending, unfortunately. Between 95 and 2003, I wrote a lot of theme tunes for various TV shows, probably the 15 or 20 in total, mainly for Granada television. And most of them got used. Occasionally, one would get turned down, but then it would pop up as a Clint Boone Experience song. Shame to waste a meal, isn't it? And occasionally, one of my theme tunes would um, be turned down you know, deemed as uh, unsuitable for the job in hand and I'd be sent packing in, in favour of some other theme tune writer to write the theme tune and sing the theme tune. After the relative success of the NG Benji TV series and the, the positive reaction to the theme tune that, that I did for it, I was asked to submit ideas for another stop frame animation series to be made by the same company, Cosgrove All TV Productions, based in Choylton, Manchester. The new show was going to be called Little Robots, and I thought, I like the sound of this. Enji Benji had been named at a preschool audience, which meant, well, from newborns up to about four years old, or <laughs> thereabouts, on it? And I met with the creators of Little Robots to go through the background of what the world of Little Robots was all about, and came to the minds of the characters, man, all this kind of stuff that theme tune writers do. And everything in the Little Robots world was made up of bits and pieces of junk uh, found in a scrapyard or a reclamation yard, as they call it now. So the message behind NG Benji was uh, teamwork. The message with Little Robots, it was all recycling, really simple as that. The main character in Little Robots is a a young robot called Tiny. And Tiny's turquoise. He's got a pink aerial on top of his head and a pink button on his belly, which when you press it, opens the lid of his head. And that uncovers his tools, which he uses for mending machines and robots. He's also responsible for pulling the the day-night lever at various points, of the day, morning time, night time, he makes it makes the sun go up, it's a day-night lever and he lives on the nut and bolt tree right next to the day-night lever and he's always dead positive about everything. He always tries to help his friends to live in peace and harmony. So I could completely relate to him. So I thought, I'm on a winner here. So I went away and I wrote a theme tune based around the idea of Tiny having a crush on a, a lady robot. Basically, he wants to shag a lady robot. I know, I know now yet, yeah, what the fuck was I thinking? But that's what I went and did. I think at the time I'd just met the future Mrs. Boone, so my head was in a completely different place. And I think, to be honest, this success of Engie Benji had gone to my head a bit. I felt like the Ennio Morricone of kids' TV theme tunes for preschoolers, or Hans Zimmer. I was untouchable. I was like that. I'm the main man here. So I wrote this song called I'm Crazy About a Robot, and I recorded the track. And I seem to remember I had to drive to Milton Keynes for some reason to play it to somebody. Long drive, that, just play somebody's song, innit? In hindsight, I think my theme tune was a bit too raunchy for a, a preschool audience. I think I gave Tiny too strong a libido, you know, for a robot of his tender years, and maybe the idea of a little robot who wanted to get his leg over for the first time was a bit too much for children's television. Actually, now I think about it, yeah. Anyway, so the track recorded in 2001, 2002, it's only been heard by three people, me, Mrs Boone, and that person who... who Didn't like the idea when I submitted it. And here it is, the song which pretty much put an end to my career as a theme tune writer for preschool kids' TV shows. This is (laughs) I'm Crazy About a Robot. moves (laughs) i <laughs> good friend of ours Jo watson private midwife uh she listens to my podcast every week she's an amazing person i don't mean she's amazing because she listens <laughs> she just is amazing but yeah the fact that she downloads this every week and listens that makes it a little bit more amazing uh jo watson i'm talking about you so anyway last week mrs boom and the boom babies spent an afternoon with joe walking in the the beautiful Lime park in cheshire not far from where we live and when they came back, my wife Charlie said, you know, Joe's got those uh, two gorgeous rabbits. And I said, yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, here we go. More pets, are just what I need. She says, well, Joe said that we can have them if you want, you know, a couple of cute little bunnies for kids. I said, no, because I know what'll happen. It'll be me that'll be having to clean the ruch out every morning, cleaning the poo up, taking them for walks, whatever it is you do with rabbits. She says, you don't take rabbits for walks. They're dead easy to look after. I said, well, where are you thinking that they're going to live? She said, on, on the flags outside the back door, next to the wheeler bins there, we can put them there. I said, what about the foxes? She said, they've got really strong guts. It's fox proof. I said, what about when it's winter? She said, we'll put them in the cell. I said, you've thought about this, haven't you? You've already thought about this, haven't you? She said, yeah, I have. She said, just think about what you've always said about your dad and how he loved animals and you loved it because it was like your real life Dr. Doolittle. And I said, yeah, I did. She said, well, this is what your dad would have wanted. <laughs> that's what you call cool playing your joker, isn't it? My dad, Cyril, right? My dad, Cyril Boone, he had a. An incredible affinity with animals. It's still something I'll always remember about him. I think a lot of time he preferred being around animals than he did with people. Animals never give him any shit occasionally. Some dip give him a bit of shit you know, in a corner shop or whatever or in the pub. But some of him, some part of him, used to really seem to come alive when he was with animals. So I grew up surrounded by animals. You know, mum and dad owned a lot of pets and my dad also bred chickens and hens and turkeys at various times of his life. We never just had one dog or one cat. We always had like multiples of, of both, you know. what I mean at one point I think we had seven dogs, all different breeds, right? So we had Shetland sheep dogs, we had collie dogs, we had a whippet. We had a beautiful dog called a Saluki, which it was like a whippet, but it had like really long hair on its on, on her ears. And now it doesn't sound reminds me of my mother in law. It doesn't sound like a good look, does it? But she had really long she had really long hair on her ears. And it's a brilliant look and I think she actually belonged to the mate of my dad. She was called Tanya, but Tanya lived with our dogs. It was like a really long doggy sleepover. And we'd usually have a couple of um, more unusual animals or sometimes exotic pets. So we had a tortoise, which had uh, been damaged in a road accident. It got run over and it had a big hole in its shell. What's the tortoise doing crossing the road? (laughs) To get to the other side. And so my dad got the tortoise, filled it all with polyfiller, which, in hindsight, we should have looked at it. it. might be toxic, you know what I mean? I'm not sure the tortoise would be dead chuffed about having some of that stuffed in its, in its shell. But anyway, so he filled it in with polyfiller and he painted it the same colour as his shell so that other tortoises didn't stir at him and cause him to be self-conscious. We even had a, we had a, pe- a peacock, we had a pet peacock. And it was quite a vicious piece of work he was, actually. Not, not as nasty as those three geese we had, though. They were proper snide bastards. Um, you'd have to take a, a plank into the pen with you to protect your legs when you went to see geese. They were the best guard dogs ever. If don't get a dog, get geese. Get geese, right? No one will come near your place. My dad came home at a pub one night with a, a ferret. He had a ferret, and he swapped it for our snooker table. That's a proper 1970s pub swap deal, right there. Swap your snooker table. What have you got? Furret. No, nah, that's a swap. So he comes home with a ferret, And my mum said, what's that? He says, it's a ferret." She says, where have you got that from? He said, I swapped it for our snooker table. She says, what are we going to do now on Sunday nights? And he says... Play it for it. <laughs> just couldn't say no to animals. Couldn't say no. We lived in a corner shop at this point in A-side, Oldham, um, early 1970s, on a busy main road between Oldham and Shaw. So it's one of the main routes from Oldham, going out through towards Yorkshire and that. And one afternoon, I was in the shop mum and dad, and a, a traveller came in to buy some sandwiches. And he started chatting to my dad. And he said to my dad, do you know anyone who wants to buy a horse? And you could see my dad's eyes light up. What kind of horse is it? Traveller says it's a it's a small one. It's a pony. And my dad says, "How many hands is it?" And the bloke says, "How many what now? How many hands? How many hands is it? Aye." And the bloke said, "It's a pony." There's obviously a communication problem going on here. But my dad says, "I, I don't I don't know without looking at it. I'd, I'd have to see it." He said, "You saw that my dad. I don't know without looking at it. I'd have to see it really. Whereabouts is it?" And the traveller says, so it's outside in my transit van, right? So my dad walks out of the shop with his traveller bloke. And I can still see my mum's face. She's still behind the counter thinking, here we go. Here we go. Anyway, about five minutes later, my dad walks back into the shop holding a short piece of rope with a Shetland pony on the other end of it. The most dishevelled, scruffy, pissed off Shetland pony you've ever seen in your life. And then the traveller sticks his head round the door, like all apologetic, like, like looking at my mum like that. And my dad says, Yeah, Mary, give him a tenner. So my mum gets a ten pound note out of till, gives it to bloke, he fucks off Sharpish in his van. My mum looks at my dad and says, What have you done, Cyril? He said, Well, I felt sorry for it. Look at straight, poor bastard. She says, Where are you going to put it? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so at this point, customers are coming into the shop. My dad stood there with his Shetland pony. They're looking at each other. Pony's got bits of fur missing. His hooves are curled up at the end because it hadn't been looked after that well, proper neglected. My mum says, Sir, what are you going to do? And my dad says, I'll have to speak to John Connor. So John Connor was a chap who lived down the street. And I think he owned a lot of the, the land where the allotments were. And dad said, I'll nip down and have a word with John Connor, see if he's got out. And he says to me, Yeah, hold on to that a minute. He gives me the rope. So I'm stood there, holding on to this piece of rope. Pony looking at me with his sad eyes like, I'm only, I'm probably 11 at this point. People are still coming into the shop, it's busy, you know, people are leaning over us, picking up bags of potatoes and pot bottles and buying the groceries and like uh, e hello, Clinton. What have you got there, then? Have you got an ice? Oh, well, it's an horse. He do not like, look very happy, does he? <laughs> but my mum did not look impressed. And I'm thinking... I hope he doesn't start doing his shit now, that, that'll push mum right over the edge. I know he didn't do his shit, but all of a sudden he came. keep my brother Booney running, running down, because running he used to live upstairs above the shop, and he came running downstairs, comes barging in, walks into the shop, flipping heck, what's that? Did we get an horse? Yes! Did we get an horse? We've got an horse! We've got an horse! He's like that proper jumping about with excitement. He, he was absolutely smitten with this animal, our Booney Craig. And I think it was him who suggested we call it Trigger. That became its name. So Dad came back you know, from John Connors, having done a deal for yet another allotment, or pens as we used to call them. And I think he's brought the number of pens that my dad had then to four. I think he had four pens at that point. And we marched Trigger off then to his new home down the street. Medium-sized allotment, big enough for him to run around. He had a nice dry shed. My dad filled it with hay. And over the next few months, my dad nursed it back to good health, got it looking right smart. Again, his coat came back, got his hooves sorted out and all that. And my little brother, Booney, he was the only person who Trigger would let on his back for a ride. We've got some great Super 8 cine film of Booney on Trigger's back running around the pen. When he first tried getting on, I remember the day he tried getting on and Trigger went mad like a a bucking bronco and that, but Booney stuck at it and eventually cracked it like a little Milltown rodeo rider. Later on in life, my sister Booney, Linda Boone, she started saying she wanted a horse. So my dad's like that, he did the old, are you sure you want an horse? because I've not got time to try and look after it. You're going to have to take care of it. And she said, yeah, I want an ice. Anyway, so they got an ice. a stunning-looking ice. And within months, Mum and Dad had got the bug completely. They ended up with three horses They were into it. They had all the paraffin, mate, para, para, all the gear to go with it. We had a white cat called Purcell. We had five tropical fish tanks in our lounge. My dad brought a a wounded kestrel in once. He found it outside and it had been wounded and he took it in and it lived with us in our living room for several weeks until he nursed it, until it was well enough to set free. And he used to sit on top of the curtain rail in our lounge watching us go about our business. We'd be there watching telly and this big kestrel would be looking at us like that, shitting occasionally (laughs) onto a piece of well-placed newspaper. And I can still remember the the smell of the, the raw meat that my dad used to feed it. He used to chop up raw bits of liver and that and feed it to the kestrel every day. And then when it was well enough, me and my dad walked down to the end of Springfield Street to other fields field, to a salmon fields it's called now, that area. And he released it and it flew off. We watched it fly off in the direction of Old the Edge. And it's quite, you know, the, 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 the image of that now is quite poignant, a nice image. Someone gave us a rabbit once, a beautiful blue-gray sort of thing. And we didn't realise at the time it was pregnant. And within a couple of weeks, we had several more lovely little bunnies. And over the months, they just kept multiplying like rabbits do. <laughs> A big, cozy shed full of bunny love, all related to each other. I think the last time we counted, there was over 50 rabbits. And how can I put it? The sudden abundance of tender rabbit meat in A-side that Christmas was a mystery to everyone in the neighbourhood. I remember one time, right, my dad was having problems with the... Uh, am I giving too much away here? My dad was having problems with rats on one of his allotments. So he had these chickens in an allotment. And I think the rats were stealing the chicken eggs or eating them before my dad had chance to collect them every day. So, what did he do? He goes and borrows a massive shotgun off one of his mates. I think his mate was Jeff Woodcock. I think it was Jeff Woodcock who lent him a big gun. Got a load of big red shotgun cartridges. And I remember it well. He said to me, Come on, let's go and sort these bloody rats out. He's there with gun, across the road, over to his allotment. I was probably seven or eight, seven or eight years old. Gets over to his pen, puts all the chickens away in the safe little chicken house, lock the door like that. And then we lay down next to each other, me and my dad, on this small hillock, <laughs> a mound. I like the word hillock, I'll stick to hillock. We're in the allotment, me and my dad lay face down on this hillock like a couple of commandos waiting for the baddies to invade. We waited ages. Anyway, eventually, rat number one comes along and I was hoping to see that trick that I'd heard about at school where one rat lays on his back with the egg on his chest while his mate pulls him along by his tail, you know, in order to get him back home in one piece. That, that's what I'd heard about, but I'm fairly sure now that's a, an urban myth, isn't it? I don't think my dad, had ever fired a gun before, or at least when when he let the first shot off, I don't think he was ready for the kickback and the noise. He's like, "Go here, you little bastard!" Like shouting dead loud because the noise had probably left him deafened, and he was a bit deaf anyway. My dad, I think he was in shock as well because this guy had my fingers in me as me, but he, he was busy pulling it trigger. Massive noise, bang! Rat right lay there, peppered with shotgun pellets, along with this big chunk of fence. That had, but it's all right behind him as he pokes his head through little rat there. So my dad walks over, picks a rat up like that, laid it on the top of a pile of wood, and then comes and lays down next to me and starts waiting for the next one. And then another rat comes toddling along, looking for his mate. Bang! Got you, you bastard! Keep away from my bloody eggs! I'm thinking, well, he's obviously not going anywhere near your eggs ever again, is he? Look at him, he's laid there like a bloody teabag, this fella. So rat number two gets laid out next to his mate, By the end of the afternoon there were three big dead rats lay on this pile of wood and I think my dad left them there overnight as a warning to any other rats that might come along for the supply of fresh warm organically farmed eggs first thing in the morning. (laughs) I came across a couple of reels of uh, quarter inch tape, you know, from a tape recorder. Mum and Dad had a tape recorder in the 96s, a little reel-to-reel thing. And I remember when we got it, it was my first experience of a tape recorder that. And we'd all sit around it recording our voices and... You know, something off the radio. And then we'd listen back absolutely amazed as it played the sounds back to us. It was incredible at the time. Like that, how does it do it? How And my dad's like that. Like brown tape, it's magnetic tape. It's so magnetic that even sound sticks to it. <laughs> anyway, so these reels of tape, they've been floating around in various boxes for many years, well, 50 years now, I think, when I think about it. And a few years ago, I got around to them and I listened to them, and uh, one of them, it's just the ambience of our living room uh, above the shop. 287 against Chalet and A side Oldham. And I think the recorder had either been left on accidentally, or maybe my dad had left it recording to erase some music or whatever was on there, and it just recorded the ambience of this room. And you can hear the bell um, of the shop downstairs as the customers come in and out, you know, the door ringing. And there's another sound on there which really brings back nice memories. And it's the sound of a pair of lovebirds that we had in a cage, only for a little while we had them, maybe a few months, I remember but We might have been bird sitting them, I don't know. But there's some sort of um, Canadian lovebirds and you can hear them twittering and twattering in the background on this, um, <laughs> this tape. So anyway, I spent the last few days reminiscing about my dad's love of animals and the effect that growing up around animals has had on me and all those warm memories and remembering the happiness that it brought to me. And I got around to thinking about our friend Joe Watson's rabbits and Joe's lovely offer to have the rabbits come live with us. And if you're listening, Joe, and I know that you will be, thanks for that lovely offer of the rabbits, but I think we're going to pass on it this time. Now, I know that's not the ending that a lot of listeners wanted for that story, is it? So what I'll do, I'll take it to the boat. I'll give you an alternative ending right now, and you can tell me which one you like, right? So this is the other ending to that story. So if you're listening, Joe, we would love to take your rabbits into the Boone household. So give us a call and we'll arrange to come and pick them up and everything. Thank you very much. So that's the alternative ending. So you've got two endings to choose from there. You, the podcast listener, you decide <laughs> what happens. You decide. Do these rabbits stay with the Watsons or do they move to the Boons? The Watsons have offered to give the Boons these two beautiful rabbits. Let me know on Twitter what you think, right? At the real Boone. Which ending you like, and use the hashtag as well, Project Rabbits, because that's what Joe's been calling this in her communications with Mrs. Boone. Hashtag Project Rabbits. Should the Boone family take in the beautiful Watson rabbits? Okay, you decide. Rabbit,
1: rabbit, 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 rabbit. You got a beautiful team You got. Beautiful face, you got taste.
0: Okay, it's time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it again. The Spotify playlist that I put together for each episode of Storytime features the complete versions of the songs on the episode and others that I might have mentioned in the stories or tracks by some of the artists that I might have talked about. Hope you've enjoyed listening again. Leave some comments on my iTunes page if you get a moment. And thanks, as always, to my good friends at Distorted Productions for working the magic on this podcast once again. Next week, I'll be announcing the next guest for my live podcast recording at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester, and you'll love it because this is a beauty. It's always nice to finish each episode of my podcast with an unsigned band or artist. Check out my other podcast, which is called Set To Go. Uh, It's available now as a free download on iTunes if new music is your thing. I'm going to leave you with a piece of music from a bunch of lads that I bumped into in Scunthorpe last week. I was on a DJ trip over there, and they gave me a six-track EP on a CD. It's called Liberty Lane. The band are Twisted Revolution. I listened to the CD in my car on the way home the next day. It was a beautiful, sunny day as I drove back along the M62. And when track two came on, I just put it on repeat. I listened to it like five or six times, and I knew immediately this was the track that I was going to put on the end of this week's podcast. It's almost like a really nice song that comes up at the end of a, a great feel good movie, you know that feeling this is what it reminds me of, the rest of the EP is outstanding too, Twisted Revolution are Connor Hanley Jordan Critchen, Miles Henderson and Joe Buttrick, they're on Twitter at Twisted Revolt they're on Facebook and Soundcloud Twisted Revolution, it's some real sunshine music to end episode 16 uh, thanks again for listening, this is Twisted Revolution with sunshines on speculation, I'll see you next week lots of love to you
1: Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.